Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Binging Bridgerton. My name is Amrita and with me today is Beth. Hi Beth. Let's talk about pretty people having romantic problems. Hooray! Let's dive right into it. Beth, what happens on episode 2 of Bridgerton? Who a lot. So my favorite thing that starts in episode 2 is we get the backstory of the Duke of Hastings and the tragedy of his birth which is that his mother who is clearly beloved by Lady Danbury dies immediately after giving birth to a son and her husband the, the first Duke of Hastings gives no bleeps whatsoever that his wife has just died setting up just one of many instances where we find out what a horrible horrible person Simon's father was. Right. And I think one of the interesting things about that scene additionally is that it reminds us that in the world of this show, sometimes there's a world of men and women because I don't think more than two genders really enter into this show. But sometimes there are very separate worlds and we see the world of women where there is fatal physical pain and suffering and huge amounts of emotional tenderness and also rage. while the men are in a totally different room literally hooping and hollering because there's a boy right and it it's just this this almost chilling sense of division which i don't recall if is revisited anywhere else in the show but i love that touch that these moments in life these liminal moments um are so full of danger and worry but also love and hope and um and some people really choose to absent themselves from those moments and that's one reason the show doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to those people. So this idea of childbirth and what it means to the women at this time um this is something that this particular episode likes to revisit over and over and over again because on the one hand you have this back story with Simon and his mother and how Lady Danbury was the only one who actually cared or even understood what happened in that terrible room where she died giving birth to him but uh also in the present day so to speak we have uh Marina the Featherington's cousin and she is pregnant which is contagious by the way <laughs> <laughs> according to Lady Featherington which I thought was a very good piece of misdirection on her part <laughs> um and uh as soon as we see that like you know we know that this is bad in terms of this particular world because um one of the little touches that this show has is that it shows how the household or lady featherington uh in particular comes to know that marina is pregnant and how she can't hide it is um because her sheets continue to be clean even after a month of a visit. We see Marina realize it first. Fortunately, I really like that little bit of her self-knowledge is actually hers to start with. That's important because she doesn't have a lot of agency in other ways, but that yeah, then the the whispering in the house and the the banishment of her to her room is so sad. And at the same time, Penelope Featherington and Eloise Bridgerton. Now we haven't talked about either one of these characters. Um, Penelope is the youngest Featherington girl, and she is desperately in love with Colin Bridgerton, who is perhaps the only man who even notices her and is kind to her. But she's also best friends with Eloise, and Eloise is. Um, 
I give her a hard time in this series. I liked her a lot more in her books, I think. But um, in this series, I describe her to Beth as a special snowflake because <laughs> um, there's a thing that some historical romances do and I am not very pleased to see it happen here in the show which is there's always this one female character who is dressed in period costume and is um, living in a particular time period but sounds as if she is a surrogate for people that are living in our time yeah. And Eloise is rather that person because, um, and that is not to devalue the questions that she is asking of herself and of her world. Uh, she has ambition. She wants to be a writer. She wants to live a life that is different from that of Daphne's. And also she is terrified of childbirth because, um, you know, um, she and Daphne can remember her mother giving birth to their youngest sister, Hyacinth, and how difficult that birth was for her. And they honestly thought that they would lose their mother to childbirth. And so they, you know what, Eloise really just wants to know how people get pregnant and how she can avoid it. And so she has enlisted her best friend, Penelope, and the two of them are on what I like to call mission pregnancy, where they are trying to find <laughs> out in a discreet manner how people get pregnant. Why do you think sex education was such a touchy subject for loads of people and continues to be such a, you know, such a touchy subject for so many people today? I mean, the basic answer I would say is knowledge is power. Yep. We can't have people know things because then they might want to control them themselves. Yep. I don't have any idea what a woman like Daphne would have known, for example, because she is very ignorant in this show, which is going to come up more later. The men clearly know and the women don't. The young men know and the young women don't. So the Bridgerton siblings are a thing, you know, like we'll come to them a little later, but um, they're a great little group and they really sell the sibling relationship between these people Yeah. Uh, in this show. Like, I believe that they were siblings right from the very first scene where we see all of them in Bridgerton House in the first episode. But there's a scene where Eloise has clearly given up on um, whether or not she can find out uh, what happened. I mean, how pregnancy occurs. And so she just asks the room at large, how does one get pregnant exactly? And there's a little <laughs> silence because everybody's like, what? Did she just say that? And then her brothers start laughing and start saying things like, haven't you ever been on a farm? So <laughs> I'm going to guess that there is a class element to why these women are so ignorant. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. I feel like farm, farm girls at the same age probably would know. But I don't know. I don't know. And this, you know, this, this conflation of marriage with the ability to be in the state of pregnancy <laughs> exists to this day in my country, at least for a lot of people. So, you know, it's a, it's a myth that we love to, to keep, especially women under. Meanwhile, Daphne and Simon are flirting all over the place. They're doing such a fun job of quietly saying to each other, are they looking like <laughs> making sure that the audience is in place for their for their next act? 
I felt bad for Daphne in some of these scenes because she has been given all the exposition dialogue in case you missed episode one, where she'll say things like, okay, we have to make sure everyone's watching or else our ruse will not work. It's so important that our ruse works because I need to get married and you need to get the mothers away from you. I'm like, yeah, I saw episode one. I saw it five minutes ago because I'm binging this show. <laughs> I felt like that the, the way they handled some of the here's what you missed was badly done. Badly done is basically what Anthony is doing as well because his <laughs> mother has reminded him of his duties and therefore he has decided that the best person to marry his beautiful, innocent, lovely sister is literally the worst person in London. And he chooses Nigel Burbrook and it's a complete and utter toad like the man is repulsive the moment you meet him and the very first time you do meet him, Daphne is trying to run away from him in a crowded ballroom and that's how she meets <laughs> Simon, in fact. Um, and Anthony just promises him Daphne's hand in marriage without even asking her and just comes up to her and says, oh, by the way, uh, I found you a husband. And she's just like, what? And he's like, yeah, it's Nigel Burbrook. Congratulations. And she's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And he's like, well, I decided and I promised him and therefore you shall marry him. And he is such an ass. I hate him. We forgot to say that Anthony has known Simon for a long time and knows that Simon does not want to get married. Yes. And will not get married. Yes. So he... He is not in on the ruse, but he knows that that's not going to go anywhere. So for him, the Duke is not an eligible match for Daphne. But also, his mother has said, you need to get Daphne a husband. And so he does. And he did choose someone bad, as it turns out. But based on the information he has when he makes the decision, it's not a bad decision. In retrospect, obviously, it's bad as soon as we meet Nigel. But, you know, he lists off Nigel's qualifications and lack of problems. And it sounds like in this world, that sounds like, okay. So, again, he's rash. If he'd done a little more research or maybe even spent some time with Nigel, he would have realized what a gross human he is. And, by the way, hats off to that actor. He conveys grossness so well. Yes. So well. So well. <laughs> and also that runs parallel to the time when Daphne and Simon are setting up their ruse. So, bad timing. So, this is interesting because, you know, we've talked about Antony and how Antony has access to all this information. And now we get to see the women's version of it because what happens is that because the entire town is watching Daphne and Simon, who are two attractive people and, of course, the most eligible people in London society, falling in love as they think, um, Nigel gets his hackles up and he really wants to marry Daphne so he corners her in a garden and tries to make a move on her at which point Daphne does the most favorite Daphne thing that she ever does on the show and uh, <laughs> punches him right in the face it's pretty great and we we haven't talked about how boxing is a thing in this show but the Duke boxes with his friend Will. I read an article, I think, on Refinery29 where they were saying, how did these two know each other? We have no idea. There's no backstory. <laughs> but he does have a friend who's a professional boxer. Um, so it's funny to see Daphne enter that 
it's like the boxing is the the men's parallel of the perils of childbirth or something like physical peril um but then daphne yeah just punches punches burbrook right in the face and the duke sees it and is impressed so the Regency romance, as we know it today, um, owes a great deal to this one particular writer called Georgette Hale. And she wrote these incredibly detailed, well-researched, um, you can call them historical romance, but they're actually, you know, they are romance novels, but they're just incredible works of literature. And uh, in them, she describes Regency society and one of their big hobbies for the men is to go to the boxing salon where they have this um this boxing coach called gentleman jackson and i believe uh will who is simon's friend uh and the boxer is based upon gentleman jackson and he's that that figure basically the boxing is a plot within the Featheringtons as well, because Lord Featherington, the head of the house, gambles on boxing, as do several of the other men, but it becomes an issue for him later. Yes. So Nigel gets his, you know, his face punched out and then decides for some reason that he's going to confront Simon and then does it in the most ham-handed way possible and ends up reminding Simon of a great many things that he really didn't want to remember. As it turns out, Daphne knew what she was doing because she kept telling Anthony and Simon to just leave Burbrook alone. And uh, by, you know, like Anthony finds out that Burbrook put the, uh, put the moves on his sister and um, gets really mad at him and then Simon beats him up. And so Burbrook... Uh, decides to take his revenge and announces that unless Daphne marries him in three days by special license, he is going to tell the world that he compromised her. And now Daphne has like no choice but to marry Burbrook because she doesn't have another offer to accept. And of course, Simon is not going to marry her. And so she's in a fix, and to the rescue comes Violet Bridgerton. I love this part so much. Yes. <laughs> and she says, we will do what women always do, which is talk. And so the <laughs> queen the queen implies, here's how to get rid of Burbrook, because the queen, meanwhile, is annoyed that that um, Daphne does not appear to be the diamond of this season. She hates to be wrong, and so she wants to get rid of Burbrook. So she invites uh, Lady Bridgerton to, to tea and implies what you need to do is find out what scandals, you know, in the Burbrook family. And they do, using their extremely trusty servants who are amazingly ready to just go to battle for their family. That was pretty amazing and great. <laughs> <laughs> and they find out that Burbrook had an illegitimate child and with a servant and packed them both off to the country and doesn't give them any money. And that finishes him off in society and he leaves London never to be seen again. So there are a couple of things that are, like really struck me about this, this entire subplot. Um, one is like, you know, you and I have spoken before about uh, the access that men have to information and how they're out and about in the world because obviously women cannot participate in public and in society the way men do uh, during this time. 
and they don't have equal access to the world basically but where they do have access is um sort of underground because they have access to the households that they manage and as such you know they have an entire little whisper network where you know they just gossip so they meet their friends for tea and they're like oh like did you hear this oh i i never heard of that oh well you know i heard from somewhere or else even you just start a rumor amongst the servants and then the ladies made passes on these rumors to the ladies and then all of a sudden it becomes salon conversation so um we've been having discussions about how women save other women through gossip uh in the era of me too because for years and years and years Mm. you know like when um for example like when harvey weinstein came out and like everybody came to know about that whole horrible story um a lot of people pointed out like that the stories about him have been in circulation in new york and la and london for years and years because women have been telling each other these stories for ages you know like don't be alone in a room with this guy like if he calls you over there then don't go there by yourself or don't meet this person after dark or you know like things like that um and that's how we protect each other and that's how we make sure that we are safe and uh obviously you know that leads us to several other questions but in this world where women have literally no power i mean we talked in the last episode about how violet has no power even in front of her son who you know she literally gave birth to um so in that world all the power that these women have is in talk as as violet says it's fabulous to watch people use their power and that's the one they have i wanted to toss in here that one of the power players in the women's world is um the modiste yes the the designer and dressmaker sophie that's right who is the the modiste who we find out later is not actually french which is very funny yes (laughs) but she you know so she has access to all of these women and you know what else is there to do while you're standing still while she's draping fabric on you other than than gossip and there's a little scene where she and lady bridgerton are gossiping and uh daphne is sitting there waiting and she she shoots this look like i am impressed with what my mother can do (laughs) (laughs) so i was actually thinking just to like bring all of this together i was just thinking about like how this episode is so focused upon the interior and secret lives of women Mm. and about you know how women are dealing with each other I mean, this doesn't just blow the Bechdel test out of the water. I mean, this is a whole other yeah. uh, whole other thing where, you know, you just see women handling their own business and uh, setting up all these little networks and coming together and talking. Um, and we don't get to see that very much in popular media, do we? No, and it, it does bear pointing out that these are incredibly privileged women who yes yes, are less privileged than their male counterparts but these are very privileged women who get to do this kind of 
um, what instigation investigation because the the gossip instigation kind of runs parallel with with um, Eloise and Penelope trying to learn about pregnancy <laughs> um, because the women of leisure they have scope and time and power to sort of manipulate information in certain limited and specific but still powerful ways I'm glad you brought up the uh, the thing about privilege because a lot of the people that watched the show also pointed out that the two women who were treated most badly in this episode are both black because you have yeah. Simon's mother who is you yeah. know literally like she bleeds to death um, in yeah. childbed um, yeah. and is ignored by her husband who uh, who's also black and but like you know couldn't care less about her um, and then you have Marina who is pregnant and is being basically slut shamed by yeah. Lady Featherington all over the place yeah. and um uh and she's going to be a single unwed mother um, from what it looks like at this point in the series you know and we don't know who the father is and all that and she talks about this love affair that she has with Penelope, who is sweet and uh, doesn't understand and is actually just trying to find out how she got pregnant. <laughs> and then Marina says, love, that's how I got pregnant. And then yeah. Eloise and Penelope are like, love? Maybe we shouldn't fall in love. Um, but yeah, like uh, a lot of people did point out that the... Well, we're going to come back to this more in uh, a later episode, but... The race, um, the race dynamics of this show are incredibly weird, and it does several things that I don't understand why they thought that, that was a good decision. Do you know what I mean? It also has a, um, again, not every show needs to. We don't want this show to have to carry the the whole burden of representation everywhere for everyone. Um, so it is concerned with white and black people and not anybody else. Yeah. You see a few other people of color who, uh, I think one of the Lords has a name, but you, no one else, um, gets names or gets dialogue of any significance. Several of them are just, you know, servants or whatever. So the servant, the servant class in here is the most diverse actually. <laughs> This is a show that really understands gender. And when you have a show that really understands gender, you'd think that they would also understand how it intersects with race, especially when you have depictions of women in different classes who belong to different races. So you're going like, well, if you're going to talk about Marina, and we're talking about Marina being from the country... And how she's not of the same uh, class as the Featheringtons. Because Marina is very upfront about that. She just talks about yeah. Lady Featherington and her spoiled, soft uh, daughters. Where she's some sort of like, you know, hearty farm girl, I suppose. And I love that she has a line to Lady Featherington that people like you will never understand. Because the Featheringtons are all white. Mm. She's not overtly saying it's about race, but clearly it's about rural and urban it's about money and less money it's about race it's about class it's about all sorts of things it's a great little statement i just i'm a little bit you know like it this is my problem like if you are going to hint at depth and then not have that play out 
in any significant yeah. way, then what is the point of it? And especially in 2020. Exactly. Pointing out that depth exists in the world, but not doing anything to describe it, question it, investigate it, tip a toe in it. Like, <laughs> it does seem like a bit of a cop-out. And of course, like, this is a, um, a series that was adapted from one of the whitest authors in Romance Landia. I mean, mm. Julia Quinn has been... Um, I mean, I know like a lot of people who saw this series um, choose to believe that these are all questions that are absolutely new. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things that has been driving me insane about a lot of the discourse because people just keep coming up with all these hot takes and they're just like, has nobody who is a fan of the series noticed this? And I'm just like, yes, like for years, we've been talking about it constantly. Like this was published 20 years ago. You think like we haven't thought about these questions in 20 years? What are we, idiots? Um, but also Julia Quinn, you know, like uh, we, I mean, you and I have spoken about this before. Like she had this incredibly disastrous panel with another romance writer called Eloisa James where they were asked why they never wrote people of color into any of their novels and um, Julia Quinn's answer was just that it was too much work mm. <laughs> she didn't know how to write people of color in her historical romances without also giving them a traumatic past oh god it was just a bad answer and then she sort of doubled down on it and um and she continues to write like very very white novels mm. and that is increasingly i'm glad to say increasingly uh divergent i mean it's not it's not fast as fast as I would like, but I would like to say that historical romance of late, um, very recently, I would say, uh, but it is trying to become more diverse and it is trying to embrace, you know, different classes, different uh, ethnicities and, you know, expand the stories that are being told and... Um, she has been, to her credit, very supportive of the race-conscious casting of the series, which was hmm. very shocking, I think, to a certain kind of audience. Again, like this is the kind of thing that I think is so interesting about a novel like, you know, The Duke and I, which is the novel from which uh, this particular season has been adapted, the first book in the Bridgerton series. Um, when you see the people who are objecting and you understand that they're not romance readers <laughs> and so you're just like well yeah. what is your problem if the source material is being adapted in a certain way when the author has no problems and the fans don't have a problem then why do you have a problem with the duke being mm. a black man um, yeah. a beautiful yeah. black man by the way I just need to like I think I'm going to say this every single episode because uh Rige Jean is uh, incredibly beautiful and he just gets more beautiful. And he's an excellent actor. Yes. He's fantastic in this. Like, you could be pretty and not a good actor and it wouldn't work. But he is both. <laughs> and the camera knows it. We'll talk about that later as well because, you know, as the season progresses and, you know, he becomes more rounded as a character and we start going deeper into his backstory and who he is. 
he does such a good job of all of it. Before we sign off, can I ask a question? On the topic of diversity in romance and conversations around that, are there any authors you would like to recommend people read or people on Twitter having good conversations that you would recommend for learning more to educate ourselves? Yes. My favorite Romancelandia authors who are always good for a good conversation, for, you know, just talking about things that are happening right now. There's Courtney Milan, who also writes very diverse historical romances. There is uh, Alyssa Cole, but I don't think Alyssa's on Twitter, but her novels are really great. Um, and she also, you know, Alyssa is one of those unicorn writers I like to think of because, um, you know, the New York Times wrote about her book because it was like so different and it was like mm-hmm. so good that even they couldn't ignore it. Um, but she wrote this uh, this novel about, uh, you know, like it was a historical romance that was set during the uh, the Civil War era and uh, it was it had this black soldier in it and it was just really great. Um, and uh, there's Deanna Rayborn, there's Suzanne Brockman. I mean, these are all romance, you know, writers. There's Suleika Snyder. I don't read romance uh, very much at all, but Suleika is another person I know through Bollywood. <laughs> um, but I love following her on Twitter because she dives right into complicated issues and states opinions that are well-formed and backed up. I feel like I've learned a lot just by following her on Twitter. And she has some a new book coming out that you can take a look at and follow her. And the thing about these Romancelandia authors is that they're all so smart and they all, uh, and they all know each other because they're all friends and they're all, mm-hmm. you know, they're in the same field. So once you start following, say, a couple of them, you will end up pretty much knowing all of them. And uh, they're always like a good time when something is happening out and about in the world. Um, Stacey Abrams, you know, from uh, Georgia, uh, she's a romance author and you can follow her and see how America is changing. So there you go. Right. So a romance writer flipped the Senate. So, yes, you know, (laughs) speaking of the power of women talking. I mean, there's a thing that they say on Twitter, which is uh, don't mess with romance landia. (laughs) They mean it. Do you have any other extra thoughts? We didn't talk too much in this episode, but the but there are multiple flashbacks in this episode to the Duke as a young man, uh, a boy, and his horrible, horrible father. At first, his father hates him because he doesn't speak well, but he is clearly very bright. He's being well-educated. He has all these skills, and his father still hates him. Um, that the, the, the episode actually ends with a, la- a final flashback to the Duke who is an adult now talking to his father on his father's deathbed. It's been made clear how important to his father that the Hastings line continue is Simon says, I will never sire an heir. And that line is going to die with me. That is his final blow to his father as his father dies. And so we, we know now that it's this hatred of his father and his father's obsession with title that drives his vow never to get married. I read a really interesting article that talked about how it would have been great if his father could have had lines like, you're going to need to be 10 times as good as any of them because they judge us 10 times harder than they judge any of themselves. And that would have given context to why his father is so obsessed with 
you know, talking right and looking right and all those kinds of things and why he was so easily disappointed in his son when his son was still a wee child, like four or something. Uh, and I thought that was a really great point that would have added a little bit of, um, it just would have added context, even if not full humanity to this father. And it's fine for the father to be a villain because the fathers in this show are useless. <laughs> useless. The king is useless. Lord Featherington is useless. The Viscount Bridgerton is dead. <laughs> you know, in this patriarchal system, it's really matriarchs who are doing everything in the world that we are sampling. Elder men are not uh, not an issue in this in this show. But I I do think that that was that would have been a really interesting way to 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 actually get the toe wet in the area of race a little bit that this, as you were saying, the show refuses to do. So it's interesting to me that uh, to hear both you and about that article because, um, again, it's maybe it's because I'm just, you know, I'm just paying more attention to this because I'm familiar with the source material. But um, there's a point in the conversation that the old you cast with Simon where he says, uh, do you know what a great honor it is that they gave us this yeah, uh, you know this uh, title and these holdings. Yeah, and Simon points out that they gave it to us and they can take it away at any point. Yeah, and that's sort of you know this is just going back to what I was saying about how this series keeps hinting at certain conversations but never quite having it out aloud. And I don't understand why. Because it just serves to confuse people. Yeah. They want to pay lip service to these ideas and these concepts, but they don't really want to fully commit is what I'm getting yeah. from the series at this point. And I say that as somebody who understands that this is fluff, that this is well-made fluff, and I enjoy fluff. But the thing is that if we are going full fluff, then we don't need to have all these tiny hints that won't come through especially when we see what they're able to do with gender that they understand it so well and they're able to play with it so well and integrate Mm. it even within the context of fluff so i'm like if you can do it that well with this particular thing then either don't mention these other things that you're not going to be doing or else commit fully and integrate that as well I again, and I wish I could remember which article I read that said this, but they pointed out something I didn't catch uh, in watching it is that somewhere in the series, people mention slavery, the world of slavery that exists so, so intertwined with the British Empire at this time. Mm-hmm. So they acknowledge that they're in a world with enslaved Africans, but they do not acknowledge <laughs> all these other things. So, like, are they tied to the real world or are they not? And I thought that was a really interesting conundrum that they set up for themselves. Because if they had not acknowledged that slavery is out there, which, by the way, the Jane Austen novels, I think, totally don't. And that's why that 90s adaptation of um, Mansfield Park is so amazing. Then we could sort of pretend that race doesn't matter more easily in this show. But then they comment that this is... (laughs) a violently racist world but then it isn't yeah 
they could have made it so much less complicated for themselves. And they also could have taken away a few seconds of time from one of the acrobats or something like that that does a great thing at setting mood but doesn't do anything for story and given some of these people a few more lines of dialogue that show some more thought about these really important issues that they, yeah, aren't going to deal with. <laughs> well, that was episode two of Binging Bridgerton. Um Beth, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter at Beth Loves Bali. And my name is Amrita, and you can find me on Twitter at Amrita IQ or on YouTube at Amrita IQ. I also co host the Khandan podcast, which is a Bollywood podcast where Beth often makes an appearance. We will see you next time for episode three and we'll be joined by our friend Manish from the It Pod To Be You podcast, which is all about rom-com movies. <laughs> <laughs>